Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading Short and Deep, The Die Hard by Alfred Bester. This is first published in Starburst, a collection of Alfred Bester stories. Um, most of the other stories in it were uh, reprints from magazines. This was an original. I don't know why it didn't get picked up by a magazine, because it, it's got some good stuff. Maybe tried to sell it to Rogue or Playboy. It feel, has a Rogue or Playboy feel to it. What do you mean by that, Jesse? Uh, he was a kind of roguish guy. He's kind of a playboy. And uh, he did sell a number of stories to those magazines. Um, there's a bit of a sex and passion sort of thing going on in, in the background of this story. And, and it's the right length for one of those punchy little pieces that, that those magazines liked. They also had you know longer pieces, but it's, it's a slightly different feel than the rest of sort of mainstream science fiction magazines for... 1958, anyways. I agree. Although, um, I think, not to give away too much that's in the story, because frankly, I hope you'll read it for us, the the main character is known only as the old one. <clears throat> and the word old appears twice in the first line of the story. I, I think that the story has a lot to do with passion, but I don't think that it has much to do with sex at all. I can see why Bester, who was really a commercial writer, I don't mean that in any negative sense. If you look at his writing career, he eventually became senior editor of Travel Magazine. He wrote in different genres. He spent his whole life as a as a journeyman writer. Uh, he's best known for his science fiction, but he wrote lots of different stuff and he wrote to the market. I can see why he might have wanted this to go to Rogue or Playboy, but I also can see why the editors there said no to it. Um, but uh, He might have just know. been adding you know, to a collection, add some new material, um, might not have submitted it, but he, he was uh, he was a sort of an outsider in science fiction even though he's so famous for his two novels that you know really hit in the 50s he had some other ones but those those ones really hit in the 50s he made a huge splash in science fiction uh but was not restricted to that genre and and it was it was not his only source of income in fact probably it was a small source of income compared to his regular day jobs so right Although, in terms of, of fame, The Demolished Man, which is one of those two novels you refer to, I'm sure, mm -hmm. was the very first winner of the Hugo Award for Best Novel of the Year. It's, it's one of the best novels of science fiction of the 20th century. It's, it's an amazing book. Um, let's read so this. So let's get into this story. Yeah. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my best to... Uh, to narrate, I'm not the greatest narrator, but uh, I think this one's fun. Here we go. The Die Hard by Alfred Bester. In the old days, the old one said, there was the United States and Russia and England and Russia and Spain and England and the United States. Countries, sovereign states, nations, peoples of the world. Today there are peoples of the world, old one. Who are you? The old one asked suddenly. I'm Tom. Tom? No, old one, Tom, 
I said Tom. You did not pronounce it properly, old one. You spoke the name of another Tom. You are all Tom, the old one said suddenly, sullenly. Everyone is Tom, Dick, or Harry. He sat, shaking in the sunshine, and hating the pleasant young man. They were on the broad veranda outside his hospital room. The street before them was packed with attractive men and women, all waiting expectantly. Somewhere in the white city, there was a heavy cheering, a thrilling turmoil that slowly approached. Look at them, the old one shook his cane at the street. All Tom and Dick and Harry, all Daisy, Anne and Mary. No, old one, Tom smiled. We use other names as well. I've had a hundred Toms sitting with me, the old one snarled. We often use the same name, old one, but we pronounce it differently. I'm not Tom or Tom or Tom. I'm Tom. Do you hear it? What's that noise? The old one asked. It's the Galactic Envoy, Tom explained again. The Envoy from Sirius, the star in Orion. He's touring the city. This is the first time a being from other worlds has ever visited the Earth. There's great excitement. In the old days, the old one said, we had real envoys, men from Paris and Rome and Berlin and London and Paris, and they came with pomp and circumstances. They came with pomp and circumstance. They made war. They made peace. Uniforms and guns and ceremonies. Brave times. Exciting times. We have brave and exciting times today, old one. You do not, the old one snarled. He thumped his cane feebly. There is no passion, no love, no fear, no death. There is no hot blood coursing through veins. You're all logic, all calm thought, all Tom, Dick, and Harry. No, old one, we love, we have passions, we fear many things. What you miss is the evil we have destroyed in ourselves. You have destroyed everything. You have destroyed man, the old one cried. He pointed a shaking finger at Tom. You, how much blood have you in your veins? Not at all, old one. I have Tamar's solution in my veins. Blood cannot withstand radiation, and I do my research in the fission piles. No blood, the old one cackled, and no bones either. Not all have been replaced, old one. And no nerve tissue, heh? Not all has been replaced, old one. No blood, no bones, no guts, no heart, and no private parts. What do you do with a woman? How much of you is mechanical? Not more than 60%, old one. Tom laughed. I have children. And the other Toms, Dicks, and Harrys? Anywhere from 30 to 70%, old one. They have children, too. What the men of your time did to teeth, we do to all the body. There is no harm. You are not men. You are machines, the old one cried. Robots, monsters. You have destroyed man. Tom smiled. In truth, old one, there is so much mingling of man and machine and machine and man that the distinction is hard to make. We no longer make it. We no longer make it. We are content to live happily and work happily. We are adjusted. In the old days, the old one said, we all had real bodies, blood and bones and nerves and guts like me. We worked and sweated and loved and fought and killed and lived. You do not live. You adjusted supermen, machine men, half-bred bastards of acid and sperm. Nowhere have I seen a blow struck, a kiss taken, the clash of conflict, life. How I yearn to see a real life again, not your machine imitation. That's the ancient sickness, old one, Tom said seriously. Why don't you let us reconstruct you and heal you? If you don't, if you wouldn't, 
if you would let us replace your ductless glands, recondition your reflexes, and... No, no, no! The old one cried in high passion. I will not become another Tom. He lurched up from his chair and beat at the young, the pleasant young man with his cane. The blow broke the skin of the young man's face and was so unexpected that he cried out in astonishment. Another pleasant young man ran out on the veranda, seized the old one, and reseated him in, the, in his chair. Then he turned to Tom, who was dabbing at the frosty liquid that oozed from the cut in his face. All right, Tom. No great harm done, Tom looked at the old one with awe. Do you know, I believe he actually wanted to hurt me. Oh, of course he did. This is your first time with him, isn't it? You ought to see him curse and carry on. What an old, unreconstructed rebel he is. We're rather proud of the old boy. He's unique, a museum of pathology. The second young man sat down alongside the old one. I'll, ta I'll take him for a while. You go watch the envoy. The old one was shaking and weeping. In the old days, he quavered, there was courage and bravery and spirit and strength and red blood and courage and bravery and... Now then, now then, old one, his new companion interrupted briskly. We have them too. When we reconstruct a man, we don't take anything away from him but the rot in his mind and body. Who are you? the old one asked. I'm Tom. Tom? No, Tom. Not Tom. Tom. You've changed. I'm not the same Tom that was here before. You're all Toms, the old one cried piteously. You're all the same godforsaken Toms. No, old one, we're all different. You just can't see it. The turmoil and cheering came closer. Out in the street, before the hospital, the crowd began shouting in excited anticipation. A lane cleared. Far down the street, there was a glitter of brass and the first pulse of approaching music. Tom took the old one under his arm and raised him from his chair. Come to the railing, old one, he said excitedly. Come and watch the envoy. This is a great day for Mother Earth. We've made contact with the stars at last. It's a new era beginning. It's too late, the old one muttered. Too late? What do you mean, old one? We should have found them, not uh, them us. We should have been first. In the old days, we would have been first. In the old days, there was courage and daring. We fought and endured. There he is. Tom shouted, pointing down the street. He stopped at the Institute. Now he's coming out. He's coming closer. No, wait, he stopped again at the center. What a magnificent gesture. This isn't just a token tour. He's inspecting everything. In the old days, the old one mumbled, we would have come with fire and storm. We would have marched down strange streets with weapons on our hips and defiance in our eyes. Or, if they came first, we would have met them with strength and defiance. But not you, machine half-breeds, laboratory supermen, adjusted, reconstructed, worthless. He's come out of the center, Tom exclaimed. He's coming closer. Look well, old one. Never forget this moment. He, Tom stopped and took a shuddering breath. Old one, he said. He's going to stop at the hospital. The gleaming car stopped before the hospital. The band marked time, still playing lustily, joyfully. The crowd roared. In the car, the officials were smiling, pointing, explaining. The galactic envoy arose to his full fantastic height, stepped out of the car, and strode forward the steps leading up to the veranda. His escort followed. Here he comes, Tom yelled, and began a confused roaring of his own. Suddenly, the old one broke away from the railing. 
He shoved past Tom and all the other Tom and Dick and Harry's and Daisy and Anne's and Mary's, crowding the veranda. He beat his way through them with his feeble, wicked cane and came face to face with the galactic envoy at the head of the steps. He stared at the praying mantis face with horror and revulsion for one instant. Then he cried, I greet you. I alone can greet you. He raised his cane and smote the face with all his strength. I'm the last man on earth, he cried. Nice. Yeah, it's a fun story. <laughs> Very thoughtful and doesn't give any answers, but asks many, many questions. Or pro promotes any, what? many questions, at least. Yeah, I, I think so. In my own notes, it seemed to me that one could read this as uh, a conte philosophique, one of those philosophical tales that science fiction actually has lots of, uh, starting with, say, Voltaire's uh, Micromegas or uh, Zadig, you know, where you have some strange world that's created in order to explore a philosophical point. Mm -hmm. um, and here there are, there are a number of them that I see, and obviously you do too, so I'm going to be happy to listen to find out which they are for you. But there's something beyond that here. As I read it over and now listen to your rendition, I think there's a difference between a philosophical tale in the traditional meaning of that genre and a Zen koan. That is, a Zen koan is provided not as something that moves us toward a specific answer, but something that moves us to keep contemplating the necessity of asking a certain kind of question. So in the Western tradition, um, something like, if God is all-powerful, can he create a rock that's too heavy for him to lift? Um, would be a koan rather than a philosophical tale, because it, it doesn't lead us to come to an answer. We can come up with ways that we want to answer it, but the question in that empty context just says we need to keep questioning. Mm. Now, I think that this, this story has a lot of questions like philosophical tales, but I think it also asks us to just keep questioning. Mm. And I think it does other things besides, but I've spoken enough. What are some of the questions that you saw there, Jesse? Who's right? <laughs> that's the, that's whose side am I on? And, uh, doesn't the old man have a point? Um, I, I, it's hard to defend his position given how violent and angry he is. But on the other hand, um, I don't, I don't trust any system that would replace I, basically I don't trust systems and th these guys <laughs> seem to have decided that they know the way and the fact that there are a bunch of Toms and the Dicks and Harrys and uh, Daisies Ends and Marys um, means they've so sort of homogenized humanity and they seem to see distinctions but uh, you know how many Toms have we met in this? There's two Toms. I can't tell them apart other than, you know, one of them has a little bit more knowledge about this particular crazy old man. He's, he, he's got a lot of um, bad features, I would say, this old man. <laughs> However, um, I'm not sure that domesticating him 
which is what seems to have happened to the rest of humanity. I'm taking this word from a very nice summary uh, on ISFDB. It says, here's the synopsis, I should say. In the future, an old man laments the increasing domestication of humanity. That's the entire synopsis. Um, but I think that word domestication, you know, making tame, making making suitable for visiting, you know, your great aunt and drinking some tea <laughs> is kind of what's gone on with humanity here. They're, they welcome this envoy from the stars. And he I note he comes from Sirius, um, which is the the dog star. And it's in the constellation of Orion. And Orion is the famous hunter. Um, and Orion is not domesticated. And he visits um, a Greek island's king's island. He, he uh, practically rapes the king's daughter. Um, he's totally undomesticated. And he's a hunter. He has dogs which do his bidding. And dogs are domesticated wolves. And if we got rid of all the wolves in the world, which people did try to do at one point, right? Um, I think that that would be a bad thing. And wolves are dangerous. But I think they're also beautiful. And I don't think domesticating man and taking away all his ability to be not so much evil, but violent is actually a good thing. So that, those are the sorts of thoughts that this promotes in me. I, 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 I get that. I, I th sort of, because of the last line, I'm the last man on earth, mm. uh, part of me wants to focus on the degree to which the story asks us to inquire what we mean by man. Um, and in this instance, I don't think that he means male. He means homo sapiens. Yeah. When he says, I'm the last man on earth in 1958, he is referring to a, an active genre of science fiction. Stories appear all the time. Frederick Brown's famous story stem, there had been an atomic war, uh, nothing on earth. Uh, the last nothing man on earth sat alone in a room. There was a knock on the door. There was a knock on the door. Exactly. So it's a very famous genre. And what... What Bester is asking us to do is consider the possibility that the whole rhetorical trope of last man on earth, or I should say the dramatic trope of last man on earth, really doesn't have to do with biology. It has to do with sociology. It has to do with whether or not you are part of a group. And in that sense, the last man on earth connects, for instance, with Frankenstein who is alone of his kind. Yeah, he can talk to others, right, including his creator, Victor, but he is alone of his kind, and that's why he wants a bride. And it's because with a bride he might overgrow, uh, that is, his progeny would overgrow the earth, that Victor justifies trying to kill him. So certainly he does uh, stop halfway through creating a bride for him. So, And it's interesting that, that Mary Shelley's other best-known book is The Last Man. I, I think... Bester is asking us a, a serious literary and philosophical question here, but he asks us other questions as well. Uh, one of them has to do with this notion of replacement. I, I have crowns on some of my teeth. I have an implant in one of my hips. 
my mother has uh, an artificial valve in her heart. Um, and I don't think that we are less than human. So we go back to that old conundrum. I have an ax. Uh, I've had it for my whole life. I replaced the head four times and the handle six times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, at what point did it stop being my axe? I mean, it was always my axe, but you know, uh, how much replacement means a man is not a man. When when Tom says we stopped making that distinction, is that a good thing not to make the distinction? I think that the 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 way it's posed in this story, it sort of seems like it is a good thing. But because after all, the old man, the old one who, who doesn't want to make that, who does make the distinction is violent. On the other hand, he knows the possibility of death. That's why he lives at the hospital. They're always caring for him because they keep him alive, a museum of pathology. Mm. The sickness is the social sickness, and they could make him immortal. He, he says, you know, you've gotten rid of a lot of things, including in his list, death. Mm. So if if getting rid of death allows me to have my old axe indefinitely, is it wrong to say, well, you know, we... So I'm replacing the heart again. I'm putting in a new implant in my hip. Did I become less human because of that? What, after all, is a man? And in a way, the story says, I'm the last man on earth as people have understood what a man is. But the author is asking us to ask, I think, should we want to say this is what a man is? Not, I think making the distinction between man and machine, but making the distinction having to do with sociality. Is it really, you have to be swaggering, you have to be violent, you have to be first? Is man equated with machismo? Or is there some other way to be a man? I I think the story asks that pretty powerfully. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it gives an answer, which is why I think it's not simply a philosophical tale, but sort of like a koan. I was thinking, like, I, I really like that word domesticated when I saw it on the ISFDB listing. And the reason is the man, old man is always snarling, right? This is this, what a what a vicious dog or a wolf will do, right? It's not what men do normally, although metaphorically they do. And I get the sense that none of the Toms, Dick, Harrys, Marys, Daisies, or Anns um ever snarl they seem highly domesticated and, <laughs> and and when they're all calm right and and when when he, i just want to read two sections here again you have destroyed everything you have destroyed man the old one cried he pointed a shaking finger finger at tom you how much of your blood do you have in your veins none at all old one i have tamar's solution in my veins blood cannot withstand the radiation i do in my research on the fission piles so fission piles are not for nuclear weapons exactly they're for nuclear power but he can stand next to a fission pile easily because he doesn't have blood Uh, he's 30 to uh, he's 60 percent replaced and some people are 70 percent replaced but it doesn't just extend to blood and then when he beats him in the face the blow broke the skin on the young man's face and was so unexpected that he cried out in astonishment not in pain 
but astonishment. An another pleasant young man ran out on the veranda, seized the old one, and reseated him. Tom, who was dabbing at the frosty liquid that oozed from the cut on his face. So, it's not e he's not even warm-blooded. It's not even blood. These are robots, essentially. Or cyborgs so much that questioning whether they're human or not, I think, is 100% legitimate. This is this is I do too, not, but I, I also it's not one sided at all. And I don't agree with either side. It, it's certainly legitimate to ask if this is human. Uh, my, my suggestion is that it doesn't tell us how we're supposed to answer that. I agree because I just want to point to the end, though, like, again, except for the except for the biological aspects. What is there about the Toms that makes them? somehow less than human only that they can't get hurt and die i mean they're kind mm -hmm. they're thoughtful right they're domestic the worst you can say is they patronize the old you know well this they do treat him like a child and he's very childlike in many respects but uh, it's that mistrust i think it in the end and you pointed to the end earlier with that last man on earth uh, I think, and that's a really good connection that I wasn't making, um, but I think when he says, I alone can greet you, um, and he gives him a, he hits the alien in the face, this could be, you know, this is the start of a war with, with humankind, right? Um, you don't go up and slap an envoy in the face or hit an envoy um, uh, if you don't want to start a war. And yet, what is the face? It's the face of a praying mantis. Right, not yeah. not something human at all, but another animal, um, like a wolf. Uh, now, praying mantises are not they're not uh, known as vicious exactly, but they are freaky. <laughs> and well, actually, they are it, from a human viewpoint. They're they're vicious because the females consume the males indeed. during copulation. Indeed, and uh, you know it it is the face of a praying mantis, but I get so get the sense that it's large it's not like a little thing right this is a truly alien creature and it has come and i i think he's i think that not i think that the old one has a point in that um you can't the the acclamation that people are seem to all have for this envoy is is foolishness um Nature is not fr your friend, and you should be very careful when greeting a stranger and not let him inspect all your facilities, because sometimes those strangers are not your friend. Sometimes they're enemies. And I'm not saying, you know, it, it's always the case, but th there seems to be no sense that this is uh, a danger. And, and of course, siding with the old one where you know we should be the ones on their planet um with guns on our hips and walking down the streets proudly is also not a good solution but i i fear for what's left of humanity on this this planet in this story because they're not human anymore and he, I he's don't. too human maybe i i don't um I don't think that machismo equates with humanity 
uh, and I don't think it does in this story. We, we see enough reasons to dislike him. After all, he strikes Tom in the face, and so yep. Tom has done him no hurt. Um, but on the other hand, um, we don't get a definition of what should be human here. And one thing I do know, though, is that the look of something should not be what makes us know that it's human. Um, the fact that humans associate praying mantises with something that can be vicious doesn't mean that something from another context that looks like a praying mantis should be understood as vicious. Yeah, that's Childhood's uh, End I, I, by uh, Clark, no, right? there, there are a lot of – I beg your pardon? That's the Childhood's End sort of point uh, by Arthur C. Clark. Yes, indeed. Uh, there, There's a lot in this story – that may or may not be intended as reference. As I say, I see a reference or at least a resonance with Frankenstein and Mary Shelley's a whole body of work in that last line. Mm -hmm. but, but there are others. And one of the things that I note here on the first page is that uh, right after we get the, the introduction uh, to the conversation between Tom and the old one, um, he sat shaking in the sunshine and hating the pleasant young man. They were on the broad veranda outside his hospital room. The street before them was packed with attractive men and women all waiting expectantly, expectantly somewhere in the white city, there was a heavy cheering, a thrilling turmoil that slowly approached. So first, the fact that the narrator has us hear this as a thrilling turmoil uh, suggests that Tom is right. They do still feel passion, even though they have many replacement parts. But the white city is actually a famous place. If you capitalize the W and the C, it is a... a, a collection of buildings in an artificial lake that were the centerpiece of the great Columbian exposition in um, Chicago in 1893. And almost all of it has since been demolished. But the point of that great exposition was to show that we are on the way toward utopia. And the white city was in fact white because it was made of stucco and so on. And it looked white, um, in some sense, emulating the visibly white ruins of the classic period, although we now know that those ruins weren't white when they were actively used in the classic period. Um, so there's a there's a reference here, I think, to a utopia. Mm -hmm. And it's it's, it's, an, it's a significant dream. But it's a dream that is mostly fallen away, although there are a few buildings in the University of Chicago that still use pieces of the white city. And I'd like to suggest that's not just a, you know, gee, I've imposed it on Bester. He's writing really well. Mm -hmm. There is in that very first passage that you read a repetition that suggests something. I won't call it dementia, but it it, it suggests uh, a mind that no longer can focus. It's just moved more by by random firings. Mm -hmm. In the old days, the old one said there was the United States and Russia and England and Russia and Spain and England and the United States. Then the old one is shown to have this sort of unconscious repetition on a number of occasions. So we know that his mind is not what it should be, but... Halfway through the pay, through the work, we get this, and I'd like to read it because it alliterates gorgeously. It is, it's poetic. Mm -hmm. 
in the old days, so it's just like the beginning, the old one said, we all had real bodies, blood and bones and nerves and guts. Like me, we worked and sweated and loved and fought and killed and lived. You do not live. You adjusted supermen, machine men, half-bred bastards of acid and sperm. Nowhere have I seen a blow struck, a kiss taken, the clash of conflict. Life! How I yearn to see real life again. Not your machine imitation. But we don't have the time today, I think, to just go through that passage and unpack, among other things, the extraordinarily dense use of alliteration, Mm -hmm. the terrific control of rhythm. But what I would want to point out, even on just hearing it, is that Bester has shown us that when this old one really focuses his argument, he rises to a level of eloquence that exceeds anything we ever hear from the Toms. Mm -hmm. So, yes, we do know that passion to the point of death is something that we should not have to say is inherently human. But on the other hand, if we love art, and we are, after all, reading a story, if we love art, the story seems to suggest there's something we get from this that really we're going to cherish no matter how much we might think somewhere, some other direction Uh, leads us to utopia, because our experience tells us that utopia will fall away, but the art will persist. I guess there is always more to say. (laughs) And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep.